from the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona, this is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Hello, I'm Mark Schauer. Conducting developmental testing of the Army's most cutting-edge systems requires a staggering array of high-tech equipment to record, quantify, and verify performance. YPG's Instrumentation Division provides the equipment necessary to gather the data that testers need. Jason Swain recently became Chief of the Division after working with instrumentation here for the last 22 years. How did you first hear about the job at YPG in 2001? Monster.com. <laughs> never, uh, never heard of Yuma. Um, I had a geographic filter set in because I went to grew up in Oregon and went to college in LA. So I kind of filtered on the West Coast to include Arizona because it was close enough to California and LA. And that's where it popped up. And I got a phone call for a position I'd applied for and I had to look up on a map where, where's Yuma? <laughs> Almost 22 years later, here I still am. So you've worked in the instrumentation division your entire time here. Instrumentation division now for three years with the government, instrumentation in general, my entire career, yes. Um, most of the, the first 18 years were with tracks but all in instrumentation, telemetry mainly, but also uh, electronics, instrumentation in general. And now you're chief of the division. Yep. The equipment that your division has is astounding to me. Can you talk about some of the specialized equipment you guys use? It's getting more and more complex every day, um, more and more computer-based um, and network-based every day. It's amazing how PCs have proliferated and how much that's uh, been incorporated into instrumentation in general. It used to be very much, um, you know, very unique and you know, um, standalone. And now everything um, to from our instrumentation receivers and everything else is still running a computer in the background. And more of it's run by software versus hardware. And it's very much, like I said, PC-based, Windows-based, network-based. So it gives us a lot of challenges as far as integration for IT rules and stuff like that. Those are the, the bigger challenges we have today than we had before. Um, but it's just amazing how much of it has gone to computer-based platforms that everybody understands. And so it's easy for even vendors to, to build stuff off of those platforms as well. Like in an artillery test, for instance, you could be using high-speed cameras that could capture up to 100,000 frames a second, potentially. Radars, other very specialized equipment. Yeah. I mean, we have to use all of them for the, you know, depending on what the test is, what, what kind of data they're looking for. Um, we could use a variety of types of instrumentation. Um, you know, for your long range tests that we are seeing more and more of, there's more instrumentation requirements that come along with it. Everything from, you know, geodetics and surveying at the gun position to um, sensors on the weapon system itself, to the high speed cameras, like you mentioned, to downrange radars, optical tracking mounts and telemetry dishes, gathering data um, of different types, you know, radar is giving you, and they're all, they're all needed, you know, radar is giving you time, space, position information, the optical tracking mounts are giving you some visual information on what's, what the target is doing, in this case, an artillery round, you can see the rocket firing, you can see pieces fall off if, if that happens, if there's a failure of some kind, you can actually visually see that, and telemetry is giving you data off the test article itself, so the, with onboard instrumentation inside that artillery round, I can tell you, spin rate, acceleration, 
whether it's acquired GPS satellites. Um, the only way to get that information is to, to delmec it. So every piece of instrumentation serves a unique role and you know, as far as accomplishing the mission. In recent years, YPG got a lot of attention for a 70 kilometer long range precision fire. Yes. So you had instrumentation at both ends of that fire from the gun barrel to the impact zone. And everywhere in between. Um, it was very complex. We actually set up separate instrumentation um, group meetings and groups to uh, to plan to support that because uh, a lot of it's it's um, interoperability between the different test groups as well. You'll have uh, so like for that seventy kilometer shot, you know, we had um, pointing information from radars that were being passed to KTMs so that the downrange assets could find you know where the target is because they can't see it when it first fires. So there's a lot of coordination. You know, you need mission control involved. So it just involves a lot of extra groups and pieces and trying to get that interoperability between instrumentation, which is kind of new. I mean, before it was kind of stovepipe where, you know, optical tracking just did optical tracking. And, you know, high speed just had to worry about high speed and not worry about integrating with everybody else. But now we've got, you know, trying to do common triggers being spread between instrumentations. So we're all on the same start point. You know, the pointing information, like I said, for, for queuing downrange instrumentation, we're trying to you know, work together more um, in order to expand our capabilities and support the vision better. During Project Convergence 21, you had something like dozens of live videos running at the same time of different areas of the test range. Yes. Terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data over the course of weeks. It was a challenge, um, for sure. PC-21 was a different animal. We were getting some video from other ranges and stuff too, but um, still very challenging, um, just coordinating, you know, downrange, um, when different videos are supposed to be played at different time, at different times, shown at different times, and just the general supporting the mission. Now you have some very, very new and specialized radars and so on, but you also are still operating some very old radars out on the range too. Stuff made in the fifties and sixties for yeah. NASA. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're still maintaining those those older assets until it gets replaced by the newer ones. Um, the newer equipment's here, Triple RP, Range Radar Replacement Program is, is underway. A couple years, we'll almost completely overhaul our entire radar fleet. Um, there'll be a few of them that are lagging it um, another five or so years down the road. But majority of our systems will be very new here um, within the next couple years. And, you know, giving us more capabilities um, you know, we can track at further ranges, better quality of track, you know, more, more power that we can put on a, a specific target. We can track multiple targets at the same time, which is going to give us more capabilities for future missions that we haven't supported yet. Sounds like we're pretty well positioned for the future right now. That's our intent. Um, it's always a challenge to, uh, you know, look in the crystal ball and know what's coming. But that's, you know, from what we understand today, we think we're well positioned for you know, drone swarms and tracking multiple drones at the same time. Um, in addition to the single artillery shots or single airdrops that we're doing today. Jason Swain, thanks for being here today. Yeah. You're welcome. With more than three decades of experience in military and civilian law enforcement, Yuma Proving Ground Police Chief Donnie Lucas has attracted wide notice during his tenure here. We spoke with him about the importance of community policing 
and his time working as security detail for the late generals Colin Powell and Norman Schwarzkopf. Chief, you were in law enforcement prior to your Army career. What inspired you to get into that line of work to begin with? I had an uncle uh, that was uh, a police officer in a, a small town in South Georgia. And um, since I kind of I didn't have a father, so uh, my uncle was kind of my inspiration uh, to to work in the field. And I used to listen to his stories, and 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 I saw how he did the job, and I thought he was a fair and just person, and which probably wasn't the easiest job to do in the '60s in uh, the South Georgia area. Uh, not uh, especially if you were. Um, a very fair and just person, and so that kind of motivated me to 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 move in that direction, if you will. And what inspired you to join the army? Um, I was working at a place uh, called Bluebird Body Company, where we built buses at. I was uh, 15 years old, and uh, my stepdad had got me a, helped me get a job there. And after working there for a great deal. of um, I came outside one day on a lunch break, and then we got 30 minutes, and an Army recruiter came by in a vehicle, and uh, this is the late 70s, um, rolled the window down, and it was the first time I had ever felt air conditioning in a car. Uh, so uh, he told me that, you know, if, if he wanted to talk to me about it and asked me was I interested, and for me, it, you know, it was a uh, it was a place to stay, a roof over my head, three meals a day, uh, my own shoes that I didn't have to share with somebody else, or that wasn't hand me down from someone who were way too big for me. I wasn't living on a sharecropping farm no more. I wasn't having to work uh, 14, 15 hours uh, fabricating metal. Uh, so he, you know, I thought that it was a uh, it would probably be a way up and a way out of where I was at. During your Army career, you were assigned to protective details for General Colin Powell and General Norman Schwarzkopf. What was that like? It sounds better than it was. Um, <laughs> mostly uh, uneventful. Uh, a lot of times loading bags and carrying bags and um, loading up Humvees. Uh, I was on the baggage detail, uh, so it wasn't a lot of, of glamour. Uh, a lot of time spent standing in front of a hotel room door uh, or standing outside of, of a uh, talk uh, door or a tent. Uh, I did get to speak to them and, and uh, got some incited information, I guess, or some enlightenment from, from both of them from time to time. But So like in everything in life or most things in life, there's, a, there's two sides to all of it. Has you heard of Yuma Proving Ground prior to becoming the chief of police here? Absolutely not. Uh, in all the years I spent in the Army, I'd been many, many places, and and never. Only time I knew anything about Yuma is I watched a movie with Ewell Brenner, and it was there's 310 to Yuma. <laughs> and then sometimes later, I had seen the remake of that movie with Russell Crowe in it. I had no idea uh, where Yuma was. In fact, when I initially looked at it, I uh, had to look it up on the map. Glad I made the choice. Uh, thought, uh, I, looking back on it now, I've been here now for six years. Looking back on it, it was certainly the right choice for me. 
and my daughter as a single father. Uh, I met my wife here, uh, who's a, a, an Arizonan. She's born and raised in Winslow, Arizona. Um, so it's it's really been a, a positive outcome for me. In your time as chief, I've heard you talk frequently about community policing. Mm. Do you think that's an important strategy to have? I, I absolutely do. Um, in 1994, the Army had an experimental project that was being developed uh, by the officer provost marshal at the time in the schoolhouse. Uh, I was uh, slated and, and selected, if you will, to be the platoon sergeant for the first community coordinated police platoon in the Army. Uh, that platoon consists of 42 soldiers. And those soldiers were vastly made up of more mostly female soldiers. Uh, we were able to develop a uniform. We got the first bikes. We were able to set up the first precincts in the housing communities throughout Fort Benning. Um, I discovered a great deal and learned a great deal about community policing. I firmly believe that the police are the community and the community is the police. You cannot and should not try to police a place where you have no idea about the community. Uh, if you want to be part of that community, you have to get out of the vehicle, get be part of that community, talk to the people that live there, get to know them so they get to know you. Um, you get to know the children, you get to know the parents, you get to know the housing, the layout. That has second and third order effects for both crime prevention uh, and you get to know who's supposed to be there and who's not. Um, people develop a trust for you. What's your impression of the human proving ground community? Great community. Uh, when I got here, I was, I was welcomed with open arms. Um, I was provided a, a home here on the installation, uh, right away. Um, lived here on the installation for almost two years, uh, and, and enjoyed the entire time I was here. Uh, my daughter went to Price Elementary. Uh, she graduated from fifth grade from Price Elementary. Uh, she's very proud of that. Um, we became uh, an intricate part of this community. Uh, I was lucky uh, to be here when uh, Colonel Murray was here and then Colonel Poppenberger and now Colonel McFall. So I've been through uh, three senior commanders, uh, all of which have, have really taken hold of the community itself and, and been part of it and uh, actively involved in what goes on in, in the community. Chief Lucas, I really appreciate your time today. Yes, sir. Anytime. This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the Army's busiest test center.